0: Lord, we come before you and we give this time to you and we ask that you would anoint us with your spirit and guide us through your word, that you would speak to our hearts and change our lives, God, that we would learn things about you during this time, that we would learn things about ourself. Uh, Lord, that we would be focused, God, that we would be focused on what you're trying to do in our life, what you're what You're trying to show us, what you're trying to reveal to us. God, we recognize in your sovereignty, you brought us here tonight for a purpose. And only you know what that purpose is, but I pray that you would reveal your purposes to us. How th- this message tonight, this text, fits into your plan for us, God. So I, I pray, um, again, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears uh, to hear. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Uh, So, as we've been going through uh, First and Second Samuel, we got to a point where Absalom he attempted to steal the throne. The throne. Uh, of God's people cannot be stolen. God makes that clear. Uh, so uh, Absalom, he gets slain by Joab and Joab's 10 servants. So this gives uh, David an opportunity to enter back into Jerusalem and uh, become the king again. Technically, as he's always been the king, but he wasn't sitting on the throne there for a little while while Absalom took the throne. But David, as he returns to the kingdom, he's going to find that there are conflicts in the kingdom, right? It wasn't just Absalom that that raised himself up against David. Absalom had a crew. He had influence. He had people. So as David was coming back to Jerusalem, as he is coming back into Jerusalem in the present text, 2 Samuel chapter 19, we see that there was a conflict. There were some who wanted David to be king again, and there were others who didn't want David to be king again. So in David's wisdom, what did he do? He didn't just slay all the people that rebelled against him. No, he forgave them. The very people that were out to kill him, even Amasa, the commander of the army of Absalom's army, uh, him and the elders of Judah, all the people that came against him, uh, David forgave them. And not only that, that he pursued reconciliation. Why? For love's sake, for unity's sake, he was trying to bring the nation back together. As we continue in the rest of 2nd Samuel chapter 19 we'll see three specific encounters that David has during his return and we see these encounters with these specific men. Well, these men were men that David had encountered during his exodus. And these men uh, responded to David in different ways when he left. And now we're going to see them respond in other ways as he returns. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Responding to the Return of the King. Responding to the return of the king. How will you respond in light of your foreknowledge that the king is inevitably going to return? Let me ask you this. What comes to mind when I say Jesus is coming back? What does that produce in you? What does that produce in your heart? Does it produce uh, an excitement like it's about time? uh, Or does it produce a a fear like, uh, I don't know what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? Because the Bible teaches us that in light of his coming and our knowledge of his coming, it's supposed to produce something specific in us. Actually, for believers, it's supposed to produce confidence. It's supposed to produce zeal. It's supposed to produce excitement. Let me show you. It's Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 It says for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He says, in light of his coming, we're to have this blessed hope. Uh, What that means in the Greek is, it exactly means a joyful, confident expectation. Okay, So in light of our foreknowledge that Jesus is coming back, that should produce something in us. It should produce joy. It should produce a confident expectation. It should produce security. It shouldn't produce fear. But we also see in this text... How we live in the present reveals our perspective of the future. As he says, looking for this blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's to produce this zeal for good works. How I live in the present is directly connected to my beliefs about the future if i truly believe jesus is coming back for me that i am part of the bride of christ then that's going to produce a a zeal in my life to live for him let's see in second samuel chapter 19 how these men respond to the return of their king in second samuel chapter 19 uh, we're in verse 16 we got through the first uh Let's look at verse 15. We finish there. It says, Then the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shemai, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with them and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with them, and they... Went over the Jordan before the king. Okay, so we're introduced to these men uh who we were introduced to uh previously in 2 Samuel, uh, but specifically the last time we saw them was in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Shemai was the guy who was a descendant of Saul that was cursing David. You remember? When David was fleeing, he was cursing him. He's like, You don't have any right to the to, to the throne. This is this is supposed to be one of Saul's descendants that's supposed to be the king. And he's saying, All this is happening because you stole the throne from King Saul, which wasn't true. And and he's throwing all these negative uh words towards David. Not only that, he was throwing stones literally at David and his men. So Shammai is there to welcome him back. And we'll get into that in a second as we see how that dialogue takes place. But Shemai's not the only one that's mentioned here. We see in verse 17, this other guy, Ziba, who was the servant, if you remember, of Mephibosheth, Jonathan, the brother of uh uh, sorry jonathan the son of saul best friend of david mephibosheth um was jonathan's son the lame guy right and if you recall back in second samuel chapter 16 in in those first four verses uh we see that ziba actually deceived david when david was fleeing from absalom and and he told david that mephibosheth wasn't loyal to him anymore mephibosheth mephibosheth said. said that he's going to stay in Jerusalem because he thinks God is using this opportunity to make him the rightful king. But he was lying. And we're going to see how he was lying here in 2 Samuel chapter 19. We see that Ziba had ulterior motives. He was trying to gain something from the king. Shammai cursed him. Ziba was trying to benefit from him, from him. But now we'll see as David returns, they're going to welcome him. With open arms, see people, they come out of the woodworks when we're on top, right? They all want to be our friends when we're on the top. But we are the same people when we're at the bottom see, loyalty is found when we're in those places where we hit rock bottom. That's how we find who our true friends are. And these men, we see one cursed them. The other one was simply trying to deceive them because Zeba actually gained the land of Mephibosheth. He blessed David and all his men with a bunch of material things, but he just gave them, uh, you know, food and different supplies to get them through because he knew that David would ultimately give him the land by uh, tricking him into believing that Mephibosheth was no longer loyal to him we see neither of these men were sincerely loyal to David until David comes back but these aren't the only men that are mentioned here says in verse 17 that there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him he left as a fugitive with only a few men. He comes back, and there's thousands of people to welcome David. They're all on Team David. Uh, now, they were part of uh, Team Absalom, but now they're all for David. Now that they know that David is coming back to rule and reign once again. See, people, they tend to follow who's popular in the moment. This was true for King Jesus as well, right? He had a huge following. When what? He's performing all these miracles, he's preaching these powerful messages, uh, specifically when he's feeding people, right? He's feeding people bread, he's feeding people fish, he fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000. He has a great following then, but what happens when he gets tried, when he gets beaten, when he gets scourged, when he gets crucified? Very few followers at that point. Actually, only John was the only disciple of the twelve that sticked uh, with King Jesus, Till the end. Will you stand by the side of the king. Even when it's unpopular. There was a time. When it was popular to stand by David. There was a time when it wasn't. And many left. Now it's time. To stand by King David. But these men are doing it. Because it's the popular thing to do. Will you go with the crowd. Or stand by Jesus. Even when the world says it's dumb. That it's ignorant. That it's foolish. That it's a fairy tale. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 19 verse 18. It says, then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now, Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, do not, my, do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. Shammai humbles himself and he pleads for mercy, but there's no indication that his heart is sincere in this. And this brings me to the first point. Sincerely seek mercy from the king. Sincerely seek mercy from the king. There's no indication that Shammai actually has godly sorrow. Shammai is seeking mercy. Because he knows that if he doesn't, he's gonna be killed. He's going to face consequences. It's not because he has a love for the king, it's because he's afraid of what the king's going to do to him. See, we shouldn't just seek mercy from Jesus when we're getting ready to face consequences. Oh shoot, I blew it. Now I'm in trouble. Lord, help me! Right? We should seek mercy from Jesus always, not because what he can do for us, but because who he is to us. Because we love him and we want relationship with him. It's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 10 to 11. He distinguishes the difference. The Corinthians, they did have godly sorrow after Paul wrote his first letter to them, uh, rebuking them for the sins that they were allowing to occur uh, both in the church and outside of the church. So he discusses godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is this. I'm sorry because I got caught. I'm sorry because I have to face the consequences for my actions. But that's the only reason that I'm sorry. The Bible teaches us that worldly sorrow, it doesn't last. Why? Because once I forget the consequences, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right back to doing what I was doing before. Godly sorrow is this. Man, The greatest consequence for my sin is the separation that I bring between me and God. That is the greatest consequence for my sin. I've hindered my relationship with him. I've dampered it and I know things aren't right between me and him. So I'm not just going to wait for my consequences to repent. I'm going to recognize the consequence. At least the greatest one is already there. I've separated myself from God at least on some level. And I want to be back in right relationship with him. Not for what he can do for me, but because of who he is to me. Shammai gives us a picture of some in the church in our modern era. They align themselves with Jesus when it benefits them. But their heart is not really for him. We see he was cursing David. He he didn't think highly of David. He he looked down upon David. He didn't want anything to do with David. He was literally throwing stones at David. The only thing that changed was Shammai's circumstances. And now he realizes, uh oh, I made a mistake and David could have me killed. So I'm going to align myself with the king so that I can gain benefits from the king. Sadly, there are some in the church that seek Jesus out of selfish ambition, and not out of sincerity and truth. Paul says it like this, in Philippians chapter 1, he speaks of specific people who are sharing the gospel. And different people are doing it for different reasons, as we see today. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my, uh, my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Some people are, are using Jesus... Because they desire something from him, they, they, they're, they're pursuing him, they're seeking him, or pretending to have a relationship with him, because they want to gain something from him. What can I gain from the king? How can I align myself with the king so that I can get the benefits of, of being apparently right with the king, though I'm not sincerely right with the king. This is Shemai. He didn't care about David. He would rather David be dead. But now that David's king, he doesn't want to die himself. So he's using David. We see Shammai, he didn't seek mercy from the king until what? Until the king came back. The time to seek mercy from God is now, not later. If we wait to seek mercy from Jesus and we wait until he comes back, it's already too late. It's already too late. The time to seek mercy from Jesus is now. If we wait till he comes back, then that just proves it's not sincere. We just don't want to face the consequences. We don't want to be judged by King Jesus. But really in our hearts, we don't really care about him. We despise him. We curse him. We throw stones at him. This is who Shammai was. See, repentance is a gift that's offered specifically in this life. It's not offered in the next. Shammai is posing as if he's repenting, posing as if, as if he's sincerely asking for mercy, but we can tell by this man's character he's not second Samuel chapter nineteen verse twenty one but Abishai, the son of Zeruai, answered and said, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? <laughs> Abishai wanted to wipe Shammai out. He was the one that wanted to wipe Shammai out back in 2 Samuel chapter 16. He already, he already offered this to David. Hey, this guy needs to get beheaded. He deserves to die. No one's messing with my king. No one's going to say anything bad about the king that I love, the king that I'm loyal to. See, Abishai, he's standing up for the king. But the way he's standing up for the king is wrong. The way he's standing up for the king is misrepresenting the king. This is point number two. Accurately represent the king. Accurately represent the king. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 20, it says that we're ambassadors of Christ. That's a big deal. That means that we're his representatives on earth. We're literally his representation on earth. That's a heavy calling. And sometimes we can misrepresent him on this earth sometimes people say things about jesus that make us mad right that that make our blood boil and we want to stand up for the king but in our effort to stand up for the king sometimes we misrepresent the king have you ever experienced that somebody said something about jesus and your blood just boiled right like, Oh, it made me so mad. Like, I've had it happen to me so many different times. Jesus wasn't even really a man. And I could respond and say, you're an idiot. You're a fool. Like, there's no historian on the face of the earth that's going to agree with you in that. I've never said that, thank God. Because if I did, what would I be doing? I'd be misrepresenting the king. Once I call someone an idiot, they probably aren't going to respond to the love of Christ. Because calling them an idiot isn't really the love of Christ. It's a misrepresentation representation of the love of christ sometimes people bash the king it's a reality people do it all the time the god of this world hates the king and many in the world hate the king says don't be surprised when they hate you because they hated me first and they're going to hate us just because we align ourselves with him uh in sincerity and we love him and and we truly try to be uh a uh, uh, right representatives representatives and true ambassadors but when people dog the king there's a certain way to go about it we're called to represent him and we represent him how we represent him in love Sometimes we just want to hurt people when they say things about the king. That's not really the way to do it, right? Uh, you know that that church, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, right? And how like they go about things. If you don't know about them, just look them up online. I wouldn't look too hard because you're going to be very disturbed. Uh, and some of the ways that they uh, come across and they uh, pick at all these different things and, and they come across with such hate, with such anger. And, and I believe that a lot of them probably think that they're doing the right thing. Uh, I think here in this text, Abishai thought he was doing the right thing. Uh, I need to just wipe out this man who, who's disgracing my king. But the reality of it is, it's a misrepresentation. How did Jesus say that we should be known? He says, "You'll be known. My disciples will be known." By the love they have for one another. That's John chapter 13 verse 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. He didn't say by your wrath all will know that you are my disciples. He didn't say by your knowledge all will know that you are my disciples. He said by your love all will know that you are my disciples. That's how we rightly represent the king. I believe Abishai had sincere motives and intentions to honor his king. But he was... Misrepresenting him. So the king corrects him in verse 22 says, And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruai, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I, do I not know that today I am the king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king swore to him, he says, what do I have to do with you, sons of Zeruai? So he was related to these guys. Abishai was a, uh, actually a nephew of David. And, and what he's saying is, you're misrepresenting me. This isn't a time to take lives. This isn't a time to take more lives. Uh, enough people have died already. This is a time to unite the people. The sons of Zeruai were in many ways very similar to the sons of thunder. Remember disciples James and John the brothers referred to as the sons of thunder uh, in Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 55 we see this story Jesus ministering to the Samaritans and the Samaritans want nothing to do with them at this point and and James and John they say together let's call down fire on the Samaritans <laughs> let's destroy these people and Jesus says hey, hey you don't realize what spirit you're of you're, you're misrepresenting me I'm a God of love. The spirit that I'm going to breathe inside of you is a spirit of love. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's not wrath. See the king, he was coming back to the kingdom, not to take more lives, but to save lives, to unite the people. So he says here in verse 22, For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? David's saying, I'm secure in my position right now. He was secure whether God wanted him to be king or not. He always held his position with an open hand. Uh, What he's saying is, we don't have to fight for me to be the king. If God wants me to be the king, then God's going to fight for me to be the king. I'm not trying to grip this thing. I'm open to whatever God wants to do. And it's obvious right now that God wants me to be back on the throne. He knows what the Lord desires for him. He's secure in his relationship with God and what God has called him to. So he tells Shemai, you shall not die. The king, he had mercy on the very man that cursed him. See, Jesus on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, uh, verse 34. Remember, the very men that, that cursed him, the very men that, that put him up there, the very men uh, that were saying, hey, if you're really the Messiah, come on down, right? Save yourself. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus was able to forgive those who cursed him. He can forgive those who spit in his face. He can forgive those who walk all over him. He can forgive those who rebel against him. He's a forgiving king. That's who he is. And we know that David gives us, not a perfect, but he does give us a picture of Jesus Christ. He's a forgiving king. He forgives those who curse him. He gives people a second chance. The text continues. Second Samuel chapter 19 verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, he's really the son of Jonathan, he's the grandson of Saul, it's just a phrase. The son of Saul came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. Mephibosheth, once again, was the son of Saul, he was this lame guy, right? Before Mephibosheth even says anything which he's going to here in verse 25 before he says anything we can pick up on what That he was sad. He was sorrowful. He sincerely Loved his king and he mourned for the potential loss of his king. He was in a state of mourning He didn't know what was going to happen to his king and he longed for the day that the king would return so point number three long for the king's return Long for the king's return. He loved King David. He didn't even have the energy to take care of himself when King David was gone. His heart was so broken. This is the same love that we should have for our king. Not that you don't take a shower or shave until King Jesus comes back, right? You might lose many friends if you do what Mephibosheth did here. Is like, oh man, you got a lot of zeal for the Lord, but I don't want you at my house right now, right? We still let you in the church. Might put you in the cry room, but. Uh, Mephibosheth, he, he didn't take a shower, he was longing for the king. There was this, this, this desire for King Jesus to return, and it was sincere. He loved the Lord, sorry, for King David, and it's the same love that we are to have for King Jesus. The Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul discusses the response that we're to have when we consider the return of the king. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, this is the last book Paul ever wrote. This is what's on his mind while he's in prison. He says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who have loved his appearing. There's laid up for him. Or her the crown of righteousness... Getting eager, getting excited, longing for the king's return. That's how we're to respond. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Now there are certain scenarios, right? We have friends or loved ones that we don't know who are saved and there are those little checks like, yeah, I want Jesus to come back, but I want them to be saved. That's, that's all in well, but ultimately we're supposed to have this, this eagerness, this, this desire, this love for the Lord's appearing. John says it like this at the end of Revelation in Revelation chapter 22, uh, verse 20. He says, uh, even so now come, Lord Jesus, come. He's like, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to come back. Mephibosheth longed for the day his king would return. Now, Mephibosheth, he was lame and he was limited. He couldn't do much. But he did everything he could think to do to show his loyalty and dedication to his king. It reminds me of this particular woman named Mary. Who Jesus said her story will be told for ages to come. For the rest of history, past, present and future. In Mark chapter 14... This woman, Mary, just before Jesus died, the week of his death, she anointed the Lord's feet with costly oil. This oil was likely a dowry, and it would have been a year's worth of wages, the Bible tells us. But look at how Jesus responds to her here in Mark chapter 14, verse 8. He says, she, Mary, who anointed his um, who anointed him with oil, says, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. He says, she has done what she could. What he's saying here is that Mary gave it her all, just as Mephibosheth did. He he gave it her his all. See, God, he doesn't ask us to do what we can't do, but he does ask us to do all that we can do. And that was, all that, that was all that Mary could do in that moment. Mephibosheth, he's a lame man, but he did everything he could to prove to his king that he was loyal, that he loved him, that he was dedicated. And this wasn't a show, don't get it twisted. This was sincere. He truly loved the king, and he did every single thing that he could to show his love for his king. Regardless of your abundance or lack of ability, talents, spiritual gifts... There's a lot we can do for the king. And we can't worry about what we can't do for the king. We just got to consider what we can do for the king. Mephibosheth realized there wasn't much he could do for the king to get him out of this situation. Lame Mephibosheth, he wasn't going to take out Absalom, right? But he knew he could show the king how much he loved him, how much he was dedicated to him, how much loyalty he had towards him. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Verse 25, so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Remember, the king is under the impression that Ziba told him that, hey, Mephibosheth was waiting for his chance to become king again. He thought God was in this and and that uh, God was going to put him on the throne because he's in there to Saul. It says in verse 26, and he answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. Speaking of Ziba. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king. Because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore... What right have I to what right have I still to cry out anymore to the king? So obviously zeba, he deceived him. Mephibosheth gives his answer, no, I, I didn't say any of that. I was still trying to be loyal to you. I, I wanted Ziba to get a donkey so I could go out with you and hang with you in the wilderness and be by your side. I would rather die by your side than die in the kingdom under Absalom Mephibosheth. He recounts how David treated him from the very beginning... You remember, culturally, um, if uh, a new king came into power, then the king typically would wipe out all the descendants of the other king, right? Especially the males, uh, because they didn't want later on those males to raise up and think they have a right to the throne and rebel against the king and take the throne. Uh, but this wasn't David, because he wasn't concerned about the crown. He was concerned about the Lord, and he was concerned about the people. And he made this covenant with Jonathan, and, and he said, no, 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 I, I won't harm your house. I won't harm your descendants. You don't have to worry about that. That's not the man that I am. So when he found out about Mephibosheth, who was in hiding, uh, he didn't go and kill him. Rather, he said, hey, you're going to come eat at my table. You're going to come live with me in Jerusalem. I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm not going to kill you. You're going to become part of my family. And Mephibosheth, he recognizes this. He acknowledges the goodness of his king. He acknowledges without the king's kindness, he would be dead. He deserved to be dead. He recognized his indebtedness to the king. He was only alive because David spared his life. And this is the response that we're to have to our king. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He says, not only does the spirit live inside you, but there was a cost to that. Jesus paid the price on the cross. He he purchased you. He bought you. You're his now. You're indebted to him. Mephibosheth, he got this. See, we should live each moment in light of the fact that we shouldn't even be here. We really don't even deserve to live. The Bible tells us what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve truly is to die and spend eternity in hell. Based on God's standards of perfection and how we've missed that mark, the Bible says that wages of sin is death. This is actually what you deserve. But God doesn't give us what we deserve. He has mercy on us. He has grace for us. And he says, you know what? This is what you deserve. You deserve to die. But I'm going to invite you to sit at my table. And I want to recognize, you know, it's not that there are strings attached. But I want you to recognize what I did for you. I want you to be a part of my family. You were once my enemy, but now you're my friend. Mephibosheth, he realized this. He got this. He recognized it. He knew he was part of the king's family. And he wanted to honor the part that he played among the king's family. Second Samuel chapter 19 so the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said you and Zeba divide the land, though it is clear that Zeba deceived Mephibosheth, right? So it makes sense, right, in my mind, like you would say, Okay, Zeba you're done. You're getting wiped out, and uh, Mephibosheth, you get your land back. I, I do uh, believe that David sincerely believed Mephibosheth, uh, but he says, "You know what? Hey, just split the land down the middle. Uh, I don't want to deal any, with any more conflict." That's what he's saying. I don't want to have now Ziba and his large household against me. Right now, it's about peace and forgiveness and the pursuit of reconciliation. It, it's not about more judgment. It's not about more wrath. It's not about more conflict. The time for conflict. Uh, uh, has passed, okay, we dealt with the conflict, now let's pursue resolution, let's fix the problem, so he says, let's divide the land in half, and look at how Mephibosheth responds here, in Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 30, then Mephibosheth said to the king, rather, let him take it all, and as much as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house, Mephibosheth doesn't give a rip, about property, he doesn't give a rip, about material possessions, he doesn't care. He only cares about his king and he's just happy that the king is back. This is point number four. To have the king is to have enough. To have the king is to have enough. Mephibosheth doesn't care about land. He cares that his king is back. That relationship means more to him than anything else in this world. And that's how our relationship with Christ should be. Our relationship with Jesus Christ should mean more to us than anything else in this world. More than property, more than family, more than friends, more than anything. And this isn't just my opinion. This is what Jesus actually said. It's Luke chapter 14. and Luke chapter 14, in verses, uh, we'll just read two verses to get the point across. In verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the Greek word here for hate is actually love less, okay? So he's saying, he's not saying he like wants you to hate everybody, right? God says love him and love others. Uh, the original Greek, uh, it's love less. So he's saying, you need to love your family, your friends, everything In your life less than me. You need to love me more than everything else. And if you don't love me more than everything else. Then you're not worthy to be my disciple. And he says here in verse 33. He says so likewise. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has. Cannot be my disciple. Now that doesn't mean that we should just uh go around selling our cars and our houses and getting rid of our wives and husbands and children and all these different things. He's speaking of willingness. He's speaking of the willingness to forsake all. It, it, God's not going to ask you to divorce your 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 wife or your husband just to test you to see if you really love them, okay? No. <laughs> That's not what God's going to do, but but sometimes he might ask you to forsake something specific like a materialistic lifestyle like he did with the rich young ruler. Hey, 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 sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. Jesus wasn't concerned about the possessions the man had. He was concerned about the man's heart. The possessions became the man's God. And he says, you need to forsake your God and follow me. If you want me to be your God, then you got to forsake these other gods. (sighs) If God was all you had, would he be enough? Because he should be. And He wants to be. And He calls us to be willing to forsake all and follow Him. Because He wants that to be a part of our heart. He wants us to want Him more than anything else in this world. And it's not just for Him. He wants us to want Him for us to produce that contentment in our life to 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 produce satisfaction in our life to recognize the purpose and the meaning for a life in philippians chapter 4 paul while he's in prison mind you he says in philippians chapter 4 verses uh, we'll start at verse 11 he says not that i speak in regard to need for i have learned in whatever state i am to be content I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need and then he says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me okay that's the context of I can do all things through Christ and strengthens who strengthens me he's talking about contentment I can get through anything because I have Jesus that's the reality I can get through any trial I can get through any hardship I can get through uh, any conflict in my marriage I can get through any conflict conflict with my children. I can get through any issues with my job. I can get through all things with Jesus. Why? Because I recognize he's all I need. But sometimes we don't realize God is all we need until God is all we have. But Mephibosheth, he had that heart. I recognize God is all we need. God is all I need. I don't even need to take a shower. I don't even need to take care of myself. All I want is to be in fellowship with the king. He didn't care about the property. The fact that the king was back and he could be in fellowship with him once again, was enough for Mephibosheth. The text continues. Second Samuel, chapter 19, verse 31. In Barzilla, the Gileadite came down from Rajalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzilla... Was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. So, uh, this guy Barzilla, um, he provided for David in 2 Samuel chapter 17, and it wasn't like Zeba's provision where he was trying to get something out of David. Like, this was sincere. Uh, this guy, uh, he, he really cared for David, and uh, uh, he, he, he really wanted to take care of him, even when it was unpopular, and we see this man was very rich, but he wasn't greedy. He was very re- generous, uh, with what he had. But don't think for a second that Barzilla was only generous because he was rich. See, sometimes people will say, if I had more money, I'd be more generous. But that's only true if you're generous with the little that you have. And Jesus makes that clear with the, with the widow's two mites, right? He said she gave more than anyone else because she gave all that she had. Generosity isn't a monetary issue. It's a heart issue. This guy, Brazilla, he had a great heart. He had a generous heart. And the Lord blessed his heart financially. Not that he always does that. But this man had means to help David out. And when David was in need, he came through for his friend. Second Samuel chapter 19, verse 33 and the king said to Barzilla, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. He said, you provided for me. I want to provide for you. I want to, I want to, I want to take care of you because you took care of me. But it was more than a financial thing. See, Barzilla, he stood by the king's side when the majority of Israel rejected him and rebelled against King David. And now King David saying, I'm going to stand by your side. You, you stood by my side, when everybody else rejected me, I'm going to stand by your side. See, when we stand by Jesus, when the world rejects him, then he will stand by us when the world rejects us. He says this in Matthew uh, chapter 10 uh, verses 32 to 33. Let's flip to it real quick. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 verses 32 to 33. Jesus says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. He says, if you stand by me, I'll stand by you. Because sometimes it's hard to stand by Jesus, especially when the world hates Jesus. But he says, hey, you stand by me as the world rejects me. And I'll stand by you as the world rejects you. This is what David is offering. He'll stand by his friend because his friend stood by him. Second Samuel chapter 19 verse 34. But Barzilla said to the king, how long have I, have, have I to live? He's 80 years old. That I should go up with the king to Jerusalem. I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to me, <laughs> to my lord, the king? This guy's kind of losing it, right? He's getting old and he's saying, <laughs> he's saying, oh, I'm starting to lose it a little bit. And I don't really taste things as well. My hearing's not up to par. I'm not going to last very long in Jerusalem. So I might not even make it there. Uh, and he goes on in verse 36. Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And, and why should the king repay me with such a reward? He doesn't want anything in return. He says, Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall uh, shall cross over with me and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzilla and blessed him and he returned to his own place. So because Barzilla's getting old, he says, I don't really, I'd rather just stay home, comfortable there, probably going to die soon. But he sends uh, this servant, who many scholars suggest is uh, one of his sons, uh, actually. And we see some indication of that um, when David's about to die um, in 1 Kings. And he tells Solomon to to be kind to the sons of Barzilla because Barzilla was uh, kind to him. Um, so we don't know for sure. He could have just been a servant, but he perhaps was a son. Um, the point of this is, uh, this servant benefited from Barzilla's relationship with the king. See, others benefit from our relationship with Jesus. God sometimes will bless others just because of our relationship with Jesus. Your faithfulness to Jesus can bring someone else a reward. Your faithfulness to Jesus can bring someone else a blessing. And the blessing here is proximity to the king. The blessing here is fellowship with the king. He gets to live with the king. And it was because Barzilla was loyal to the king. Because he was faithful to the king. And because he was loyal and faithful To the king, now, this servant, perhaps his son, is able to follow in his footsteps. Now he's able to be loyal and faithful to the king. See, our faith is contagious. Our relationship with the Lord is contagious. It rubs off on other people. And as we're faithful to the Lord, we gotta recognize it's not just about our relationship with him. Our relationship with him will always affect other people. It will always affect other people for better or for worse. Barzilla's relationship with the king got his servant into the kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 40. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel... Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over this matter? Have you ever eaten at the king's expense or has he given us Uh, Have we ever eaten at the king's expense or has he, uh, given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered in, uh, the men of Judah and said, we have 10 shares in the king because there's 10 kingdoms. Uh, Judah's traditionally um, referred to, when they refer to Judah, uh, they're combining Benjamin and Judah. And that's what we see here. There was those thousand men from Benjamin along with the, the tribe of Judah. So 12 tribes of Israel. Judah gets combined with Benjamin. Uh, and then you'll often hear the text referred to Israel, typically referring to the 10 Northern tribes. Um, so he says here, we have 10 shares uh, in the king. Therefore, we also have more to david than you why then do uh, do you despise us were we not the first to advise bringing back our king yet the words of the men were of judah were fiercer than the words of the men of israel so the northern tribes believed that they were left out of the celebration of David coming back to Jerusalem. And there's already division. There's already separation in the nation. So they want to feel like they're a part of this. That they're back in good relationship with King David. They don't want to feel left out. So they say, hey, hey, we got ten shares because there's ten tribes. So we even have more of a right than you do, Judah. You and Benjamin are only two tribes. It's politics. And it seems with politics, there is always conflict. Either people reject the authority that's been put in place, or, or they're battling all, uh, over uh, who is more devoted to the authority, right? That's what's happening here. Uh, at one point, all these people wanted nothing to do with David. They, they rejected King David, at least most of them. And now all of a sudden they're battling against who's the most devoted to King David. We have more of a share, more of a right with King David. It's just conflict after conflict after conflict. Politics. Nothing really comes from this argument right now. But it will soon. It will in the next chapter. And then later on, when Solomon becomes king, just after him, Rehoboam, his son, who's the next king, we'll see the kingdom actually divided uh, Judah and Benjamin and the northern tribes uh, of Israel a lot because this conflict wasn't actually ever settled. See, the rightful king has returned, but he's returned to a divided nation, brother against brother, sister against sister. We'll see the division progress through this rebel Sheba in the next chapter. But we can also recognize that Jesus, just as King David returned, Jesus is inevitably going to return. And what will he find when he returns? Will he find a people that's united or will he find a people that's divided? Because he's coming in the air for his bride and then he's going to come to the earth after that, after the tribulation, uh, to, to judge the nations. But what's he going to find? What's he going to come back to? A, a divided people or a united people? Despite the fact that we see the kingdom divided in this text, there's also something we can be certain for, of. The kingdom still stands. Why? Because the kingdom is God's kingdom. It doesn't matter how many Absaloms come or how many Shebas come down the road or, or how many other people come that are trying to divide the kingdom. The, the kingdom will always stand, because it's God's kingdom. Though there will be childish bickering, as we see here in the text, though there will be gossip, though there will be uh, backbiting, though there will be division amongst God's people, God's people, or sorry, God's kingdom, will always stand, even if God's people aren't unified. Now, we can't take that and go, oh, well, whatever, God's pe- kingdom is going to stand, so let's cause division in the church. No. God desires us and he calls us to be one, to be unified. As we discussed last week in in John chapter 17, that was the Lord's prayer that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. But there's good news. (laughs) No matter how much backbiting, no matter how much bickering, no matter how much gossip, God's kingdom is still going to stand. We can't mess it up, okay? We cannot mess up the kingdom of God. It is going to stand. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 16. Verse 18, he says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, I'm going to build my church, and my church is going to stand, and my church is going to last, and no one's taking out my church. The only way the church is going to be taken out of the picture is when Jesus comes back for his church. So we see the kingdom is going to stand no matter what. But how will you you represent your king, in light of the foreknowledge that you know he's going to return. His kingdom will be established, but we're still called to be his ambassadors, his representatives here on earth. What's he going to find when he comes back? It'll be, ter- be determined by the way that we live our lives, will he come back, as we see in Matthew chapter 25, and say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord? Or will he say, you wicked and lazy servant, uh depart from me. The king's going to return. But we have a decision as to how we respond in light of his return. We see how different people responded. Some in sincerity, like Mephibosheth and Barzilla, and some with a lack of sincerity. Shammai, he waited for the king to come back before he sought mercy for the king. And again, if we wait for the king to come back before we seek mercy from him, it's going to be too late. The time to seek mercy is now. The time to be a faithful servant is now. When we look at the trajectory of this world, it's going down quickly, right? None of us know the hour. None of us know the day. Nobody can predict it to a T. Jesus made that clear. But there's a reality. He says it's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. There was just another earthquake the other day, right? Jesus says there are going to be more and more earthquakes. We can look through history and see there's more and more earthquakes in the last hundred years. There are going to be all these things that happen, wars and ruins. Rumors of wars. I just got stung by a bee before I came up here. Me and Stephen both. Like, <laughs> the, the whole, uh, all of nature is crying out for the king to come back. I was like, thinking about that. I was like, man, I don't know what you're trying to teach me here, Jesus. But, uh, but wow, like the, the earth is crying out. It's growing pains, the the Bible says. For the Lord to come back, to return. But what's he going to find when he comes back? That's up to us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, we thank you so much for this time and, and God, we look forward to your it's your return, Lord, I pray you would produce that that blessed hope, that joyful, confident expectation in our hearts, God, that we would eagerly await your coming, that we would recognize the trials of this life are just temporary, uh, but there's going to come a time, if we're right with you, uh, Lord, that that we're going to spend eternity in paradise, no more sorrows, no more tears, God, and you're going to come back for us, you're going to come back for your bride, uh, Lord, and, and I just pray that we would um, just have that mind, that mephibosheth had, that we would long for you, God, that we would do all that we can. Uh, we know we're not saved by salvation, or we're not saved by uh, by works or, or uh, the things that we do. We know that we're saved by faith uh, in you, Lord, but I pray with that faith, God, you would produce in our hearts that same heart that you produced in Mephibosheth, that we would do all that we can for you in our short time here on earth, that we would recognize our lives are not our own, that we're indebted to you, God, to live for you, Lord. So give us the power of your Holy Spirit to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.